flows through me. I am immortal. Behind the wave of my mind is the ocean of cosmic consciousness, the eternal life of God flows through me. I am immortal. Behind the wave of my mind is the ocean of cosmic consciousness. The eternal life of God flows through me. I am immortal. Behind the wave of my mind is the ocean of cosmic consciousness. The eternal life of God flows through me. I am immortal. Behind the wave of my mind is the ocean of cosmic consciousness. The eternal life of God flows through me. I am immortal. Behind the wave of my mind is the ocean of cosmic consciousness, the eternal life of God flows through me. I am immortal. Behind the wave of my mind is the ocean of cosmic consciousness, the eternal life of God flows through me. I am immortal. Behind the wave of my mind is the ocean of cosmic consciousness. The eternal life of God flows through me. I am immortal. Behind the wave of my mind is the ocean of cosmic consciousness. The eternal life of God flows through me. I am immortal. Behind the wave of my mind is the ocean of cosmic consciousness. The eternal life of God flows through me. I am immortal. Behind the wave of my mind is the ocean of cosmic consciousness. The eternal life of God flows through me. I am immortal. Behind the wave of my mind is the ocean of cosmic consciousness. The eternal life of God flows through me. I am immortal. Behind the wave of my mind is the ocean of cosmic consciousness. The eternal life of God flows through me. I am immortal. Behind the wave of my mind is the ocean of cosmic consciousness. The eternal life of God flows through me. I am immortal. Behind the wave of my mind is the ocean of cosmic consciousness. The eternal life of God 
flows through me. I am immortal behind the wave of my mind is the ocean of cosmic consciousness, the eternal life of God flows through me. I am immortal behind the wave of my mind is the ocean of cosmic consciousness, the eternal life of God flows through me. I am immortal behind the wave of my mind is the ocean of cosmic consciousness. The eternal life of God flows through me. I am immortal. Behind the wave of my mind is the ocean of cosmic consciousness. Oh, to hear when it's not on. <laughs> Remember this? And what happens is, I mean, he says it perfectly. When you come out of your meditation and you say, where was I? That means you've gone into subconsciousness. You may have felt different than normal, but you don't remember where you were or what happened. And it's if it's so, and whenever you start feeling yourself slip that way, you just have to raise the energy. And But a lot of people, it's very easy to get into the habit of you meditate, you put in your time, but you're not putting out dynamic energy. And as a result, you're not really, you're just living in a vague subconscious world where you're not really conscious of the external world, but you're not really super conscious either. There, he tells the story in the path of uh, when Rinalini Mata was just a, a high school girl and she came downstairs and Master said, you didn't meditate this morning. And she said, Master, I meditated a whole hour. He said, well, you would have been better to meditate a half an hour because in an hour's meditation, she had just let herself wander around. She hadn't maintained her dynamic energy. And it's a very serious and bad habit that meditators get into of uh, just meditating but not doing it energetically. So Master said it's better to meditate for a short time with real dynamic energy. I mean, it's really better because if you get in the habit of drifting around in subconsciousness, that becomes your definition of meditation and as soon as you go there that's where you go and it just becomes like the groove in your mind oh I know what I do now I go into this subconscious state so it's very important to avoid that state even if it means having your total meditation be less does that make sense? and that's what all the techniques are for not the least of which are, are chanting and meditation which we just did because you can uh, then use those things to occupy your mind Maybe you don't have the energy for Kriya or you're bored or you just need something to make you stronger. I mean, Kriya, above all things, really lifts the energy. But even still, after your Kriyas, you might find that you're having a tendency to drift. But you start repeating affirmations or repeating mentally chants that you would otherwise sing in order to keep your concentration more. Um, And it can keep you from going into a subconscious state because you'll know exactly where you were. Uh, the, the, the eternal life of God flows through me. I am immortal. You know where you've been. You know exactly where you've been. 
And when you go off into dream states, you can bring it back to that. It's a mantra of sorts. Yeah. So that's why uh, Master gives us so many different techniques. It's to keep us from being captured by the great maw of subconsciousness, which wants to take us down all the time. Okay? Any other questions or thoughts? It's a very important phrase. I'm glad you pulled it out. Okay. So let me see what else was here at this time. I love the way Swami just says, words are thoughts crystallized, melodies are the resonance of the heart's aspirations, harmonies deepen the emotional power of those aspirations, and rhythm grounds those aspirations in the present. There you are. You just about have it right there, don't you? That's the very first page, second paragraph of the first page, after the words, chanting is half the battle. Swamiji has remarked that melody... Um, is, is melody defines our aspirations and our hopes. And he points out that modern music conspicuously lacks melody. Um, I use the word music in quotes. You know, the, so much of what's modern, even what's modern and called classical, often is totally devoid of melody. It's just noise, you know, random bits of noise. And uh, a lot of what people call music now has no melody whatsoever. It is just noise. And that's because nobody knows where they're going right now. There's no sense of direction and there's very little sense of aspiration. So people can't write melodies because they don't, they don't know what to do. And they're creating music that's a perfect reflection of our, of our culture at this time, which is it has no aspiration and no direction. And it just, it just wanders around in chaos. And that's exactly what's happening. It's very well put here. Um, the Swami also remarks, you know, how, how music can be used negatively to take us away from our high aspirations. And it's very, um, it's very important if you're a person who's trying to meditate that you have to realize that it's not just a question of the time that you spend meditating. It's a question of what your consciousness is doing all the time. And if you fill your mind and your atmosphere with restless downward pulling things and then you, you donate 30 minutes a day or two hours a day to trying to uplift your consciousness is like trying to swim with weights around your ankles. And above all, sound has a really profound effect on us because we are sound vibration. Om is our very nature. We're also light, but it's somewhat removed the way we look externally. But sound comes right into us. There's a very interesting article. It appeared in some collection of essays. It was, I can't remember, one of those uh, collection books. It wasn't chicken soup, but one of those kinds of books. The article was pulled out. It's it's extracted from a a full-length book itself. I'm not really sure where it's from because I always had it separate. No, not Reader's Digest. (laughs) It was too serious for that. It was the story of an eight-year-old boy who lost his vision suddenly. Some of you may have read this. And uh, I think later he became part of the um, underground, the French underground. Yes, it, and his, he, was, he became a member of the French underground and actually he became absolutely infallibly able to tell who was a spy and who was a genuine supporter of their cause because he, he could feel their vibrations so he wouldn't be fooled by appearances like everyone else. He became very effective. Yeah, it was a very interesting story. But when he went blind, he had, uh, there was an injury and something happened and so in a very short period of time when he was eight years old, he lost his sight. And it was a you know, sudden apparent catastrophe, but he praises his parents for the way they treated him, and therefore he, 
he discovered that you could see perfectly well without eyes. And so it's an amazing story because he discovered that everything gives off vibrations and that you can see those vibrations inwardly um, as clearly as you can see externally because he had both, had had both, he, he just knew. And he, he didn't see inside what he saw when he had his eyes working, but he could, he could navigate his way through the world and he could even describe, he could describe the trees go, going down a pathway and he could describe the shapes of all the trees because he could feel their vibrations. He could find his way around rooms, he could feel the furniture because everything was alive. And he talked about how because his parents did not tell him he couldn't see, he was able to develop the ability to have inner sight. And he talked about another boy that he met in his teens who was very depressed and angry, who had also lost his sight as a child, as he had done. But he had, he, his parents told him, didn't believe him when he said he could see, and so he lost the ability to see. And the author of the book wasn't able to reawaken it in him because he'd lost faith in the fact that he had it. And also, this man who was talking about being blind, and it's really, it is a remarkable story, talked about the fact that um, he could see that, that people had colors, because he saw things in different colors, and moods and energy had color. And he also knew that when he became angry or afraid, he couldn't see anymore. And it said, he said it became a perfect, just infallible system for keeping his consciousness what it needed to be. Because when he became angry and afraid, he moved away from the light and he couldn't see anymore. Isn't that quite, isn't it quite a story? But the part of it that's relevant here also is that when he lost his sight and began to navigate the world through vibrations, he became extraordinarily sensitive to sound. And he described, without being a yogi, he, he made a perfect description of the way the yogis talk about the Om vibration. He said, people pay no attention to sound. He said, they don't understand that sound penetrates right through you. He said, all sounds are part of your inner self. And he said, if you're constantly surrounded by dissonance and noise, he said, it, 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 it changes the fiber of who you are. He said, you have to really pay attention to it. And that's just how the yogis describe it, that, that the vibration of Om is our very nature. Because in the beginning, there was one stillness of spirit, and then that stillness vibrated. And everything in creation is made from one spirit vibrating. That's why everything in the universe is dual, because it could not exist except that the stillness of spirit is vibrating. You see, and so it has to go back and forth. And when it ceases to vibrate, everything goes into one. But otherwise, it's always pleasure and pain, joy and sorrow, night and day, youth and old age, sickness and health, life and death. And the only place that it stops is in the stillness of spirit. And when that vibration begins, it has both light and sound. And that sound is the sound of Om. And when we internalize our consciousness deeply enough, we hear that vibration of Om. And Swami very briefly describes the listening process of listening to the Om in the, in the process of learning the techniques that lead to Kriya Yoga, we teach a technique a little more elaborately than he does of listening to the inner Om. But that's why the power of sound used correctly, 
whether in speech or music or affirmation, has such a profound effect on us because it is OM. All of sound is derived from the essential uh, substance of the cosmos. And even when we talk about it metaphysically speaking, the Divine Mother is, is the is, is the own vibration, the, the comforter, the divine mother, the own. It's all the same way of trying to describe this inner resonance that makes us feel completely safe and protected. The reason we call it the mother is because when we're in that vibration, we have this overwhelming sense of protection and unity. And that's why we use it in the second chapter he talks about we, we try to translate this spiritual force, which is beyond our understanding, into something that we can understand with our human minds and our human hearts. So we use this feminine image of mother, not because there really is some lady there with an apron, you know. There's some teachings that are so narrow. You have Heavenly Father and Divine Mother, and you have this picture of them like house, uh, like the housewife. I mean, I'm not kidding. And it's just sort of, you have this whole humanized force up there, and she bakes and cooks for God the Father, and it's just kind of <laughs> completely beyond lunatic. But, but, uh, but what we're really saying is that we have an inner experience of a divine vibration that it m- gives us the sense of everything that, mo- that the concept of mother represents. You know, even your human mother, as Swamiji writes, is just a symbol of divine states. Everything that we have in this world is given to us, not as an end in itself, but as a, because the eternal life of God flows through it, and it takes on these different forms um, to remind us of something more profound. And the, the, the comforter uh, is what the mother is. And the comforter is that sound of Om, the the resonance of our own spirit. Um, when, when Agni would teach these classes on music, he would always make an interesting diagram here. <clears throat> he would so, sort of, let's see, how would he do it? I think he would, for some reason he would make a bell curve, and I'm not sure exactly why. But he would talk about, <laughs> that's not a wonderful picture. He would just talk about this being the vibration, the pure vibration of Om, and everything else moves is farther away from it you know, in some way or another, is an aspect of it, but moves farther and farther away. And everything that resonates closer and closer to the pure sound of Om takes us deeper and deeper into our own nature. And everything that resonates farther and farther away from it removes us from really who we are. And so when you have um, spiritualized chants or powerful mantras or, or beautiful uplifting music, it in and of itself, the vibration of it is closer to the pure vibration of spirit. And we have other dissonant sorts of sounds that are harsh and music that's very uh, life-negating and has no rhythm and has no melody or has energies that pull you way down. There was a song, um, I guess it was during the Depression even, by Billy Holiday, Holiday, called Blue Monday. And they actually took it off the airwaves because it so perfectly captured a sense of despair that people were literally committing suicide because of it. Because they had tuned in to some, some vibration, some very distant vibration from the Om 
that instead of lifting you up toward hope, pulled you away from that hope. And if you capture it perfectly, you get completely uh, captured by it. Swami writes in this chapter about how the, you know, the, the Nazis made great use of both music and slogans to really uh, inspire a sort of oxymoronic there, but to motivate people to do things that they would not normally have done in any other circumstance. I mean, think how powerfully music affects us. Think how right after September 11, uh, in this church on the Sunday immediately following September 11, we sang America the Beautiful, which has just some beautiful words in it. And there was so much uh, anxiety and uh, angst in the air, and the, the church was completely full. Everybody who ever came, came on that Sunday. And we all stood up together and put all the verses of that song on the wall and sang it with full force. And it changed our consciousness to sing it. There was no way around it. The words were very meaningful. Some of the, the sub, uh, beyond the first verse of that song have very spiritual um, meaning to it. And the melody is just so powerful. And it was, it was a, a, we could have talked for hours and would never have accomplished what the singing of that song accomplished because it put us in touch with a kind of courage and self-sacrifice and nobility and idealism, which is the foundation stone of this country. Um, Many people, including Swami Kriyananda, would love to mount a little campaign to change our national anthem to America the Beautiful because it's uplifting. The Star Spangled Banner, besides being hard to sing, is about bombs and war. And yes, at times that is what you have to sing, but let us first think about noble truths, far better basis for this country than the image that we have taken. And so we have to, having experienced that a little bit in our lives, when we used to have our, um, our center was over on California Avenue, on the second floor of a corner now that has a, it has a coffee shop underneath it. It used to have Kinko's used to be there before Kinko's moved up the street. And for seven years, we were on the second floor of that building. And uh, across the street, I'm not quite sure what it is now, but that the round building used to be a nightclub. It was called The Edge and The Vortex at various times. <laughs> and even though our... Uh, our facility was hardly what we have now. It was actually a very nice place, and we had some really wonderful experiences there. And it was in the back of this uh, concrete building, uh, cinder block building. It was sort of like a cave. There was never, and there was no daylight. It, was, it had no windows to the outside. And so as a consequence, it was just a world unto itself. And we used to, you know, go up there and hide out there and have these wonderful experiences. Then we come down the stairs and we go by Kinko's and we come out onto California Avenue. And then often, if in the evening, the nightclub across the street was going strong. And it was sort of all mostly inside that it was happening. But the beat was so strong that you could actually feel it in the sidewalk. And you could kind of hear it. Just kind of subliminally, just like banging away like that. I used to... Um, ride my bicycle sometimes in the evenings back and forth of the summer and one night I had to mail a letter so you know I went around behind and it was um, I think it was teen night for some reason and there were there were hundreds of of, uh, teenagers there all in black that was the period when everybody wore nothing but black they were all in black 
and they were sort of milling about ready to go in. I mean, they were, they were good kids. It was nothing like that, but they were like ants milling about. They were all milling about like ants, and I was riding my little bike through them, feeling extremely old and very uncool, you know, kind of riding through. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and inside you could hear like the monster going thwump, 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 and it was eating all these children, just eating them. And I just wanted to stop and say, don't, don't go in, don't go in. But I knew that I would have just been laughed off, off as an idiot. So it just let it happen. But, but really, it's not a small thing, not that we can stop young people from doing what they're going to do. But consciously on our part, we have to really think what kind of sound vibrations we want to constantly affirm in ourselves. And understanding all that, we can use it in reverse. We can recognize that that's why Master, it's quite a statement, chanting is half the battle, Master said. The right kind of chanting is half the spiritual effort. Because if you use the power of words and music and rhythm and melody in the way that he describes, we, we can create within ourselves a constant resonance with these higher states of consciousness. Any of you, you know, who have spent any time at all either doing affirmations or chanting, realize how very quickly it just permeates you. And you wake up in the middle of the night, you come out of subconsciousness, and you realize that your subconscious has been feeding you a chant. Now think about that. Think what that really means. Your conscious mind is the battleground between the subconscious and the superconscious. Now, remember we talked about that earlier? Your conscious, your conscious level does not exist. It does not have an independent reality. It is merely the ground in which you experience the influence of one or the other. Either you're lifted up toward a higher state of consciousness or you're pulled back to our habitual subconscious all those little vortices that we talked about earlier, spinning around in our spines, remembering all these little egoic experiences and constantly wanting to give them to us, that's the subconscious. Swami talks about how, remember in earlier chapters, about how the chakras, the spine, is just an extension of the subconscious. And every day we walk around, I mean, think about how often today um, I had a, 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 a treatment on my back, a shiatsu treatment, and Somehow the woman's energy was very strong and it kept putting me into a subconscious state, that very peculiar kind of subconscious state where you just don't, you don't really quite know if you're asleep or awake and it's just that state where you come out of it, where have I been? And all these just chaotic images just going through my head and, you know, waking up thinking I'm in the middle of teaching a class or I'm somewhere else, you know, just, and I'm still just in the midst of this uh, treatment. But I kept drifting in and out. It's, I don't like that experience at all. I mean, it was an excellent treatment, but I don't like that in and out of subconsciousness. But what do you experience? You experience whatever's piled up in there, right? That's all you're experiencing. And just walking down the street, suddenly you'll be following some particular line of thinking or some particular feelings, won't you? Where does that come from? Well, it can come from superconsciousness, but most often it's coming from subconsciousness. We... Our energy kind of, we're, we're just, it's, this is like a little piece of iron and there's magnets pulling it up and there's magnets pulling it down. And just whichever one gets stronger if our consciousness is going up or going down. Now, if the subconscious mind you have to appreciate does not make any original contributions, that's, a, that's just a very, very important thing to understand because it feels like it has so much power, but it has no original power. 
It's completely helpless. It, it cannot initiate anything. It can only feed back to you over and over again, sometimes all scrambled up. But nonetheless, it only feeds back to you whatever you have given it. Right? Now, the superconscious is the originator. The superconsciousness is the, is the level from which your, your, yourself is created. But if you feed the subconscious, whatever you feed it gives back to you. Just as simple as that. You feed it fear, you feed it worry, you feed it anxiety, you feed it self-doubt, you feed it guilt, and then you are worried, fearful, anxious, doubtful, all of those things. You feed it the infinite power of God, the eternal life of God flows through me. I am immortal. Behind the wave of my mind is the ocean of cosmic consciousness. If every time you have a spare moment you say, I am immortal, behind the wave of my mind is the ocean of cosmic consciousness. If you just say it over and over and over again, then you fall asleep and your subconscious mind rolls around. There's not much going on in it. I am immortal. I am immortal. You wake up in the morning. I am immortal. I am immortal. I am immortal. <laughs> you know? You're not even fully conscious yet, but whatever's been in there is feeding you. And, then, and when you add melody to that, it becomes even more powerful, as we all know, because it, melody sort of cuts through. Chanting is half the battle. If you're having trouble meditating, if you're having trouble keeping your energy up, if you're having trouble keeping your mood up, I mean, it's almost like we can't believe it. How can it be so simple? Well, it isn't that simple, because in order to keep our minds on the chant, we have to withdraw it from everything else. But if we do it, so simple, so simple, half the battle is won. But Swamiji says here, and he says it very well, it's not a magic formula. The power of the chanting comes from the willpower and concentration with which we do it. Because you can do it half-heartedly and it will make no impression. It will make no impression because we're dealing with vortices of energy. Remember how we talked about that earlier? And if your chant is so feeble that the vortices are stronger, you can just keep going like this, but it won't affect it. But if your chant is such a powerful river of energy, it, it literally dissolves those vortices into it just like a fast-flowing river sucks up the whirlpools if the fast-flowing river is stronger. So it's a very uh, valid uh, expression of the fact that you don't have to really... This is Again, this is sort of cumulative in the way this book has been written. You don't ever have to focus on anything that's troubling you if you just reprogram the subconscious to be oriented toward higher truths. Now, again, you can't do that out of fear of what's in your subconscious. But you can do it out of a very calm understanding that I just don't need to mess with this. If I use my concentration and willpower to recreate my sense of self, then all those troublesome sense of self will simply go away. Now, will they go away from night to morning? In, in, in theory, yes. Because all you're dealing with is energy. If you could generate enough energy in three hours of chanting to equal all of your incarnations of delusion, you could flip it in a day, right? But most of the time, it takes us time to develop the willpower and the concentration to tip the balance. But the instant you start 
building up on the positive side to that extent, every little vortice of uh, egoic energy that, that vibrates at a lower level than the chant you're putting out now in the, in the first round gets dissolved into it. Do you see what I mean? Because it's just the river flowing and everything of a lesser energy. And if you keep the river flowing and keep adding to it, then all the vortices will be dissolved. And when you sit to meditate, your mind will automatically go up because your subconscious will feed it to you. And by the same token, we have to appreciate that the practice of affirmations is not just uh, I am the eternal life of God flows through me, I am immortal. It's not just saying those words. It's every instinctive reaction of your mind. When we talk about the power of affirmation, the power of chanting, we're not just talking about the formal practice, although that's all that was referred to primarily in this book. We're talking about the whole orientation toward life. I remember a very humorous thing that happened once years ago when I <clears throat> I was married to someone else who was generally a very positive person but had a little bit more of a, uh, a life is tragic sort of bend than I did and we had this this extraordinary moment we were very young and the car that we had had been given to us by his parents and we were not working or earning much money because we were hippies and uh, that car was uh, really uh, valuable to us and we didn't have the concept of how we would ever get another one and we were just uh, pulled out into the street and just turned to start up the street and the car just stopped working as cars are wont to do especially two people who have no attunement with them like us <laughs> so it just stopped working right in the, right in the middle of the street and we both spoke simultaneously he said the car is ruined i said it's something small right we had neither of us had any idea what was wrong with the car we were, we were going from completely equal ignorance. And, and his perception was that it was going to be difficult, and my perception was that it wasn't going to be difficult. Now, um, uh, pardon me? It was small, I have to tell you, because I often forget to mention the end of the story because I get so involved in the philosophy of it. But I reflected on it later. Uh, much later especially, just sort of because it, it was just sort of a moment in time and then we went on and had to deal with the car. But I realized later, to my own credit, and I would take credit for it, it wasn't really that I thought that the car itself was going to be easily fixed because in fact I had no idea. I just instinctively responded by saying whatever it is, it's small because it's only a car. And one of the great tricks of being positive is not just to be positive about your circumstances, but to take everything to the infinite scale instantly, right? Okay, so what if the car is broken? So what if we don't have a car anymore? I mean, part of my optimism was the sheer stupidity of being 19 years old, but nonetheless, it was still, it was just like, what difference does it make? It'll just be one thing after another, no matter what. And how can anything in this universe, I and mean, we just sort of stumble along, it, it, consonant with that is the great revelation that I had when I was the same age, my first cosmic experience, which many of you have heard me recite. But I was beginning to study these teachings and I was trying to live more in a centered way. And 
but I, I've always had a very, I have a very Gemini mind and it tends to be doing a lot of things at the same time. And it also tends to be thinking that something's going to be better after I finish this. That, that's that idea that I will rest later. You know, Swamiji talks about that a great deal, how many people live their lives not for what is happening now, but for what this is going to take me to. And we think, and it, what's consonant with that is we think that the satisfaction and happiness we're seeking will come when we get it all organized and can rest, or we have more free time, or we don't have to work as much, we don't have to worry about money. Whatever the thought is, there's the thought, if I can just get things set up, then things will start. And we don't realize that what we want is the state of consciousness that that represents to us. And very often when people finally get their little worlds all set up, they have a heart attack and die. I mean, many people have heart attacks as soon as they retire. Or people get very bored, or they sink into mental uh, confusion. Because, that, because, because a, a low energy does not satisfy us. And the freedom that's based on the fulfillment of our desires doesn't really satisfy us. The freedom that we're really looking for is to be meaningful in the moment, to be centered in the moment, to have an experience of joy, to have the power to do what is ever at whatever we need to do. That's where our sense of joy comes from. And so we spend a lot of times in our lives deferring things. The, the generation that I was part of, which many of you are part of, had, had a huge spiritual karma. There was just, it was just a wave, a generation that came in that was very much into thinking about values and not thinking about stuff. I mean, many of us later re-entered the sort of system and raised children and got sort of comfortable. But nonetheless, that thought form is there. The generation that has come immediately after us not, not our children, but the sort of group in there, has been very conspicuously not interested in spiritual things. You find a, not, a, not a universal, but there's a, there's a sort of a, a space of years where there aren't that many representatives in the whole movement of self-realization. I remember talking to one such lad not too long ago, and he was in his 20s. And we were talking about his spiritual aspiration, and I, suggest, he, I suggested to him that maybe he should take some time off and go up to Ananda Village and spend some months up there, just you know, getting into the spiritual path, experiencing community and so on. His answer to me was, what about my retirement fund? I said, you haven't had a life. How can you be planning your retirement? Usually you have a life and then you retire. But it's just, it's just the thought form that I have to, everything about now is about the future. But it's very insidious. Maybe that's too transparent an example, but nonetheless, we're always living like that. Well, coming all the way back to this little moment in time, I was washing the dishes and I was trying to finish the dishes so I could go on to the next thing. And there was like a, a t an inner tension to get out of this situation into the other one, out of the imaginary thought that the other one would be better. I mean, this was just washing dishes, but this is the thought form that many of us torture ourselves with. And I'm sitting there washing the dishes, and I hear an inner voice. And it says, What's your hurry, honey? It's just one damn thing after another. <laughs> but it was, it was a profound teaching. It was the first 
you know, woo-woo experience I ever had. And it was a profound teaching and I've never forgotten it. Because to this day I find myself in big and little ways thinking if this will end, then something I want will begin. But it is just one damn thing after another, isn't it? And if we just relate to them as well, here we are. I had a friend, um, Nishula, Nishula Devi, she calls herself now. She used to be Nishula Nanda. Uh, she uh, used to travel around. She was a, a yoga teacher and meditation teacher, a wonderful lady. And uh, now she, she still travels and teaches. She's become an expert in yoga for the healthy heart. She works with Dean Ornish, very wonderful woman. And she used to travel all the time. She didn't live anywhere. She was a classic sadhu. She would just travel all over the world. She had a suitcase. That was all she had. Don't give me any presents, she said. This is the only thing I have to carry them in. And uh, I said to her once, how can you stand this? And she said, I've trained myself to live wherever I am. She says, wherever I am, I consider it my home. She said, if I'm in a taxi cab, for the duration of the time I'm in the taxi cab, I consider it to be my home. Isn't that a marvelous practice? But just just think about the inner freedom that that would give you. We're always defining this and defining that. And it was that's why the the tradition of being a sadhu in India is that you never stay more than three days in any place, because you don't ever want to make any place your your home. Really, now that's not our path. the The path that that self realization teaches is more moderate than that. It's not so extreme. It's not necessary in this age. At the same time, that teaching is absolutely true. And it's, and it's very worth standing back and thinking about that. We come into this world, we, 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 when we enter this world, this world sucks us in and makes us think that it is the primary reality. And all of our education, especially in this culture from a very young age, is simply teaching us how to relate to this world. I remember after I'd been at Ananda for about eight years, I was actually reading Yogananda's uh, commentary on the Bible. And even though I wasn't raised in the Christian teaching, I was raised Jewish, nonetheless, living in this culture, I'd absorbed enough of it to know that what I was reading there was not what everybody thought. It was very, very different than what everybody thought. And I just had this realization that nobody had ever taught me anything true until I'd come to Ananda. And nobody had ever told me anything true. I mean, they told me facts, but no one had ever actually looked at me and told me what the purpose of my life was. In fact, that had been my extraordinary frustration, is that nobody ever could tell me. My parents did did a, a, a better job in the sense that they inculcated in me a very strong sense of morality and ethics and honor and uh, responsibility, which which was the beginning. But they couldn't put it together because they didn't know either. So you go all through this system and your whole education is about the next step of your education. And of course, educators are all in cahoots with each other, so they all make you feel that education is the reality. You know, the high school teachers make you think that college is where you have to go, and college makes you think you have to go to graduate school. And meanwhile, life is happening all around it. But, but it's just an explanation, and all you do is you're just trained to run the system. Nobody ever stops and says, what's real for you? What's your reality? Who are you? I mean, more so now, but you understand what I mean. And then we finally find out that we're here to realize God, that this entire planet, it's just it comes and goes. And, and every time we die, 
Over and over we die, of course, and every time we die, we say, oh God, it sucked me in again. <laughs> you know, just like a trick, a trick that, that children play, where they get you. They, they do something and then they get you. When my nephew was visiting me, he used to love to sneak up on me and startle me, which was not hard to do. Because <laughs> I would get absorbed in my computer, and the computer I had then also whirred a lot, and so he could sneak right up behind me and then tap me, and he would just, it gave him so much pleasure to do that. <laughs> because he could get me every time. I would be caught over here, and I wouldn't notice that over there. I feel like that's how Divine Mother's playing with us. You know, there you are. Remember I shared with you that friends of mine, this couple, and they were beginning to have an argument. She was getting hot about it, and he smiled at her and said, Are you caught yet? I'm not. <laughs> right? And it's a question to ask yourself when we're just getting so intense about this world. Are you caught yet? Are you caught? Do you really think that anything matters in this world but your consciousness? Right? And that's how you come up positive every time. What is there to be worried about? Because all this is is an exercise. If you keep the right consciousness, if you recognize what you're really here for, to be an instrument of God for your own salvation and for the upliftment of others, beginning middle and end of story. This wonderful book I was reading about a woman who counseled people who were dying, she, talked to, uh, she told the story about this one man who had been very much afraid of dying and she'd been working with him for a long time. But then a few days before he died, he called her on the phone and he, he was just full of happiness where he'd been worried before. And he, he, he described to her that suddenly he had observed that this world that we were living in had a border and that it was just like a, like a stage it wasn't like a closed world it was just like a stage and he, he realized that there was an edge to it and just beyond the edge of it there was an entire reality and that entire reality was really what his life was about he had just stepped onto the stage of this world he said even now he said I know it's there it's right behind the head of my bed he said, I can't quite see it, but I know that it's there. And then a very short period of time, he crossed over within a few days. But it's always there to see. Uh, souls like Yogananda, he said he was as much in the astral world as he was in this world. He saw the material world just as we see it, but simultaneously he saw it was just a manifestation of a higher level. That's what we talked about in earlier chapters, didn't we? The, the, the material, the astral, the causal world, that this is just an expression of that. It, there's no point at which this takes on an independent reality. We come in and out of material manifestation and all we ever have is our consciousness. Literally, I went in and out of the YMCA today where I go to swim. I walked in, I got in the pool, I huffed and puffed from end to end for half an hour, I got out and I walked out. I walked in and because it's an exercise that makes me stronger. I enjoy it, but I primarily do it because it makes everything else work better. As an end in itself, it's not something that I live and die for, right? But I walk into this life. It's longer than half an hour, but we just come here. We exercise. We exercise our willpower, our concentration, our determination, our ability to keep our focus, our capacity to remember. Smriti is the wonderful Sanskrit word for it. It's a fabulous word. It's um, smriti. It means simply divine remembrance. 
to remember who and what you are. Smriti. Did I spell it right? Yes. These are eyes. Okay? It's, it's a really marvelous word for which there is no English equivalent. It just means remembering who you are. You want to reawaken smriti, reawaken the memory. Oh, yes, that's right. I'm just playing a game on this stage here. Now, Master tells us chanting is half the battle to remembering that. Because what happens when you chant? You just get into that state, don't you? You know, I am the bubble, make me the sea. Receive me on thy lap, O mother. Listen to my heart song. We just, all of it goes away. You think, what am I so uptight about? And then you wake up in the middle of the night, and what are you thinking? Door of my heart, open wide, I keep for thee. And we think we have to pay attention to all this other stuff, but you don't. (laughs) Let's take a short break. I think that might be all of that. Any questions now or comments? I wanted to talk a little bit about the last chapter. I won't have too much time. Yes, yeah, sure. A quick thing that I've been reflecting on that I think relates to this idea of sound and like the diagram. It seems that there's something about just something it being in perfect alignment. And I relate to it, of course, with music because that's what I do the most of. But I've also thought how often there's a certain thrill when something is perfectly done. Like I was at the Nutcracker Ballet in December, and there was one where they were so, I yeah, mean, perfect. And, it, and it just, it was mm-hmm. so incredibly uplifting. And so it seems like anything, whether it's a sport or, that when, when there's a certain, perfect alignment, that it, it strikes a real, and it seems like that's, no, that's exactly right. There's sometimes you, People just capture the, well, they're capturing the astral, they're capturing the causal, they're, ca- they're capturing the pure thought and it's coming through. No, I think that's exactly right. And that's why excellence is thrilling. Uplifted excellence is thrilling. Yeah, exactly right. so many different ideas of what is But not really, not really, Eric. I mean, that's a common, yes, but there are ideas that are enduringly uplifting because they resonate with your true nature. Now, human, human mind is such that it can create pleasure out of all kinds of crazy things and enjoy itself. But not, it's not, it's a, it's, a, it's a temporary thrill that does not last. Whereas that, I mean, you can, you can enjoy yourself greatly out here, but, but it won't last and it won't make you lastingly happy. Whereas if you're enjoying yourself because your energy is going like this, there's an eternal nature to that bliss. That's why some art lives forever and some of it just fades away. Now, every, nowadays, because everybody wants to be free, they're trying to pretend that there's no center point. But it's not human nature. Uh, interestingly, for example, Michael Jackson, you know, who, who I don't really have that much relationship with, but I've heard him once or twice. And I was so impressed He's so good. I mean, he's just um, breathtakingly good. I mean, this was, I think he may have fallen from his crest. This was a few years ago when I saw him on television, but he took my breath away. He was so good. I didn't like what he did, but he was superb at it. So it's kind of like a compromise there. He He picked a certain wavelength and captured it exactly. And there was a certain power in doing that. It'll be nice when he picks a higher wavelength. (laughs) 
But he was, you know, a worldwide phenomenon because he just got a kind of popular image and just did it really well. So in that sense, you can say, well, you can be excellent at many things, but what he did won't take you to God. You know, his, his concentration will, will advance him, but not as much as if he were channeling something more, more high. And you can enjoy it, but at the end of the time, you won't go into an ecstatic state. You'll just keep moving around on this planet. So from, from the point of view of, is there a goal to life? If the goal of life is self-realization, then goodness and excellence has a point to measure it. In, in our culture now, we've forgotten that the goal of life is self-realization, so we say, well, it's all just relative. Everything can be good from a certain point of view. Well, yeah, without a, without a point of reference, you can say it's just a matter of taste. And that is what people say now. But if you have a point of reference, which is the purpose of life is to realize God, then things are good or not insofar as they help you toward that. Now, you can say also everybody's doing what they have to do. Yes, that's true. But they may only be spinning in circles, getting ready to go forward. And you may say they have to spin in circles, but that doesn't mean that spinning in circles is good. It just means that it's a necessary karmic period for them. Does that make sense? I, I cut you off a little quickly, and maybe that wasn't even what you were going to say. <laughs> Sometimes I hear something and I answer it before I even let the person ask. It's a bad habit of mine. And then later the poor soul says, that wasn't my question. <laughs> Fifteen minutes later. <laughs> I do have another question. Uh-huh. I'm relating about what you just finished up with before, about uh-huh. uh, really not having to worry about... Um, about the things we do tend to worry about because it's all just an act, it's all just a stage. Um, how do you relate that with the fact that I do tend to worry about uh, the fact that Rick wants my rent every month? <laughs> well, no, no, now it's different. It's different to say that you can be irresponsible. When I say don't worry, I don't mean you don't have to put out maximum effort. You have to put out maximum effort because that's the nature of the game. I can't just get into the middle of the pool and just sit there. I have to swim from end to end because that's what I'm there to do. So when we're born on this planet, we can't just come and sit here. When you see people who just come and sit and try to sit out the whole thing, they're not uplifting for the most part. You see that When you see the extreme extension of people who just say, oh, it's all a dream, I'm not going to do anything. You, you, you're in their company and they don't inspire you. And the example you see of the masters who really have nothing to do is that they dedicate themselves wholeheartedly and, and generally accomplish a great deal, either through consciousness or through action. So this is real. The dream is real. Let's see, how does Swami say it? Every level of reality has its own inherent reality. So even though this is only a passing phase, in terms of eternity, it's, it, the, the, the nature of the game is that we have to learn to relate to it appropriately. And appropriately on this world is that you have to pay the rent. You generally have to have a job in order to pay the rent. You have to treat people in a certain way. You have to, that's the exercise. But the exercise is to do all that with right consciousness. And right consciousness is to be willing to do whatever is needed and still be in joy and not be in rebellion or frustration or anger or despair, any of those things. It's not easy. No, Yogananda used the, said the really not very inspiring phrase that life is a terrible machine 
He said it just eats people up and spits them out. You know, it's just, it's just that, that he has, uh, there's some uh, phrases in uh, <laughs> well, yeah. No, yeah, he was. He was talking, everybody else can name their own thing. It, it is. It's a very unforgiving place we've come to. And it does, it breaks us, it breaks a lot of people, more or less. I mean, how many people end their lives um, standing straight up and strong? I don't just mean physically. You, you, how many people look back to... Um, there, there was a, supposedly a poll done once and people were asked what was the happiest day of their life people in midlife and they said their high school prom <laughs> I mean you know everybody always gasps but the, the idea of that is simply when you were still in fantasy and hope before you really had to apply yourself and find out what a struggle life really is so when we discover what hard work it is to live right there's a tendency to want to curl up in a ball and not do it. I mean, we all have that. I mean, I've often talked about finding myself in bed in the middle of the day with the covers pulled up to my chin. Not really quite sure how I got there. <laughs> Just kind of gradually wanting to be there and being there. Um, we all feel like that. But sooner or later, I remember one very wise woman said, you know, she said, I, she was an older woman, older than me now, that's older. Um, <laughs> She talks about how, uh, you know, you might think it's, you might think you can't go on, but you will. And she said very simply, it's just not that easy to lie down and die. <laughs> and I've often thought about that, because oftentimes you just want to lie down and die. But you lie down and you try to die, and you don't. <laughs> and after a while you get bored, or lonely, and you have to get up again. Because it just isn't that easy. So it's, it's worth remembering, because if sooner or later you're going to get up, you might as well get up before the mold starts to grow. It's just easier. <laughs> but it's no, it's no joke. Life is very, very difficult, um, especially if you, if you don't know what you're doing. In other words, if you don't have God, if you don't have the awareness of, of God as the goal. Any other questions? Because that brings me to where else I want to go. Did you have another question? No? Okay. No, no. I just don't want to cut you off if you do. You know, that, that brings me to just a little bit I want to say because it's really time for us to end. But at the end of the chapter, the last chapter we read for tonight, Swamiji has that wonderful short part about really appreciating how personal your relationship with God is. And he's talking about meditating and he's also answering some common misconceptions that meditation is not making your mind blank. In fact, he says it's dangerous to make your mind blank because lower astral entities will come in and take over your body, which you know, they won't if you meditate properly, but if you try to become too passive, if you, if you let go of your willpower and become too passive, you open yourself up to negative influences. Whether you literally become possessed or not is a more extreme question. But you open yourself up to negative influences. So when we're meditating, it's not as if we're trying to become nothing. We're trying to tune our radio station to a higher level. And it's different than the conscious level, but it's not less, it's more. And so he emphasizes states of consciousness that you focus on, a sense of freedom, a sense of peace, not a sense of nothingness. But then he also talks about how the divine is everything, and even though in the highest philosophical sense the, the, 
the sense of personalness dissolves into the infinite, yet on the level that we live, and he says it so perfectly, God is personal because we are personal. And therefore, we, from, through our filter, the infinite looks personal. It was such a perfect, a brilliant answer to a conundrum that's been you know, philosophically debated again and again. The divine comes to us in the form that we need. And we're personal beings. We relate to things in a personal way. And so the infinite takes the form that we will recognize. Just as simple as that. Because we won't know that God is coming to us if it's just this, the cosmic ground of being. We won't recognize it. We, we can't even see it. But when we feel the comforter, when we feel the peace, when we feel the divine love, ah, then I know what I'm feeling. I'm feeling the infinite spirit. And so Swamiji encourages us to, to focus on that profoundly, focus on a specific manifestation of spirit, whether it's mother or father or Jesus or Yogananda or Buddha or Krishna, but make it personal. And then the, the infinite spirit will come through that window and your relationship will be much more dynamic. When we teach meditation, I always try to say to people, meditation is a relationship. It's a communion with something that really exists. And make that as personal to your nature as you want to. The more, the better. And div- the divine will come to you in whatever form you need. As long as it's in harmony with the divine itself. But don't, uh, don't be shy about that. Don't be too philosophical. He said even the masters enjoy coming down to this level so they can enjoy a relationship, an I-thou relationship with the infinite. It's beautiful to contemplate. And again, many of the chants, the ones that when I was singing tonight, Receive me on thy lap, O mother. Cast me not at death's door. It's such a heartfelt cry. Don't leave me here. Just like a little child, you know, don't leave me here. Come and get me. I don't want to be in this place. We don't mean that we want to die from this world, but we don't want to be trapped in this world either. We want to be able to go beyond it. One of my friends, her son is quite an interesting lad. And he was about five or six, seven maybe. She found a little sealed envelope that he'd he'd written a letter to God. And uh, she decided she would open it. And it said, get me out of here. just say it all? Be ye therefore like little children, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. All right, I think that's the last word we tonight. Bless you.